This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. Listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. A little more than a month ago, we had a conversation about urban wildlife, which included the topic of deer, white-tailed deer specifically. They're dispersed all across the state in both rural and more urban settings. While that previous show, we couldn't get into the topic of deer at length. They're our sole subject for today. So we have Pierce Young in the studio with us from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks to help us understand more about these creatures that share Mississippi with us, from green fields to gray buildings. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Libby. We always like to start out with you and hear what you are seeing in and around your yard. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, I have, well, I think I've talked about our cedar wax wings a lot. I'm still seeing them, of course. Um, I wanted to mention American goldfinches because uh, a goldfinch is something that I think most people will be able to catch a glimpse of at least. And if you're a backyard bird feeder at all, you're familiar with them. But uh, we get them in the winter here in this part of the state. Although, I guess I should say, I think that's kind of the trend's kind of changing. North Mississippi has always had goldfinches year-round, South Mississippi just in the winter. They go all the way up into Canada and the northern states during uh, the summer, and well, starting in the spring, spring, summer, fall, and then come back down. But as temperatures change, and we all know the climate is getting a little warmer, and our uh, Goldfinches are starting to stay. I have a neighbor, a friend down the road just a few miles from me who had them all year last year, and she had some breeding and nesting. So I'm hoping that maybe some of mine will elect to stay. But uh, they're starting to change into their breeding colors a little bit now. So the males, you can see, are getting a little bit more brilliant, and that will continue on until... March and April, they'll be really bright yellow. And uh, anyway, they're fun to have, and they're easy to to attract to a bird feeder. So if you don't have goldfinches, you might put a feeder out and see if you can get some. Um, I'm also enjoying my little ruby-crowned kinglets. They'll be one of the tiniest birds you'll find, and that makes them, I guess, uh, distinctive a little bit in that uh, when you see one that's just smaller than everything you know, uh, you might start looking into it and see if it might be a, a kinglet. I have ruby crowned and um, golden crowned, but I see the ruby crowned a lot more often. They stay closer to the house. So that's fun. Oh, and a, a friend uh, recently saw a female Baltimore Oriole. So there's take a good look at whatever is in your backyard and on your feeders especially and um you might find something unusual few people reporting hummingbirds still around even through all the really cold weather 
Now, see, Libby, I just learned something, I think, because as we all, well, most of us, some of us know (laughs) that the Baltimore Mm -hmm. Orioles are a baseball team, but I never realized there was a specific bird named the Baltimore Oriole. That's interesting. It, now, I would imagine the Baltimore Oriole was named long before the team. So, so. <laughs> so, uh, so, all right, well, then because of baseball, I associate Orioles being uh-huh. orange and black. And I, I'm guessing maybe not all the Oriole birds are that color. Uh, yes, the Baltimore Oriole is just a brilliant orange, golden orange color with um, a lot of black tones. Yeah. All right. Well, good. That's that's interesting. Really pretty birds. Yeah. And and props to the baseball team for being right and, and getting the right bird on their uniforms and such. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, they did pick a really pretty bird. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Troy Major joins us from his clinic in Jackson each uh, Thursday morning. Good morning, Dr. Major. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, this weather we've been having. First, we had to help our pets survive the cold weather. And then here just uh, recently, a lot of rain. Uh, I know the thunder kind of woke me up once last night. What about our pets? What are some things to do uh, if our pets get anxious when the weather gets rough? Great question. And, uh, you know, we had typical, I guess, Mississippi weather. In other words, it's been cold, dry, cold, wet, and now it's getting wetter, which we need the rain for certain. The, the thunderstorms and certainly can cause some issues with some dogs. I'm blessed that my my four dogs uh, pretty well sleep through most of anything, so I'm not sure that they'd be good watchdogs. But, uh, you know, everything from the, quote, thunder shirt, uh, which is kind of a swaddling uh, thing that you can put on your dog, uh, it seems to work in some dogs. It doesn't work, seem like, if you leave it on always. And there's some dogs that have to have medication uh, for thunderstorm anxiety and or firework type anxiety as well, loud noises. So I uh, need to talk to your vet about uh, what possibly you could use as far as something to just uh, calm, and there are over-the-counter type calming products as well that can be used. But yes, it's a real problem with a lot, a lot of dogs. I had somebody yesterday that said, that, you know, about 4 o'clock yesterday, the dog was on their chest telling them, hey, there's something going on. And it was shaking like a leaf. And these thunderstorms come through. They can make a lot of noise and a lot of tension. But as you said, there's a number of different uh, things that you can do. And so it would be a good idea to check with your vet. Obviously, your vet kind of knows the dispensation of your pets, whether they're nervous or whatever. And so they can help you go in the right direction to get the proper thing to help them uh, through these times. And I think we've mentioned a couple of times your cat's probably going to hide under the bed or that hidden place that you don't know where it is until he or she thinks it's safe to come out, I guess. Right. Cats have an innate ability to maybe go to their safe place where there's some place that you don't know in the house, which may uh, be difficult to find the cat sometimes. Uh, but they they have the ability to just really kind of shut down and not worry too much about the thunderstorm-type situation. All right. Well, let's uh, kind of turn that around and say this. If it's rainy outside and, you know, your dog is usually one that likes to go outside or whatever, but so sort of cooped up in the house due to inclement weather, are there some things to do to help – kind of make them easy, uh, maybe find a favorite toy to play with or something? You know, it's just difficult. We have, uh, in most cases, uh, the dog spends time 
and can't spend time by itself during the day if we're all gone to work and are not there. Certainly a favorite toy is good to always have. Uh, most dogs do well with that. We have some dogs that have uh, separation anxiety, and these dogs may need medication as well. And it can be worse during times of rain and thunderstorms. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a broad picture. We have some dogs that have to be on medication continuously, uh, simply because they are so, uh, what's the, I'm not sure the right word, but they have separation anxiety, and it's compounded when there's thunderstorms, this sort of thing. I'm sure you've all heard of situations where the dog is torn up the couch or, you know, made a, a big mess of everything. And that's one reason for crate training. A lot of dogs would rather be in a crate, uh, you know, than be left to their own devices, if you will. So um, let's talk about dogs specifically here. If a dog gets out in the rain or whatever and gets wet, we've all seen a dog kind of shake its coat to kind of uh, (laughs) dry off a little bit. Is that sufficient, or do you maybe want to get an old towel out to make sure that your dog's completely dry if, if they do get wet when they're out and about? It depends on you and your house, actually. I would suggest having uh, ample towels to especially dry uh, the hairy dogs off, or all dogs, uh, simply be sure their feet are dry. And that does help uh, rather than having them come in and staying wet most of the day. So I would have several towels by the, the door that they come in and out and be sure to have them at least towel-dried, maybe not perfectly dry, but uh and a lot of dogs simply will not go out into the rain. Uh, I've got pictures of a dog in the snow. He had three partners, and uh, they were all out enjoying the snow, and this, this little dog was sitting there at the door. They had a picture of him, and he said, not on my watch. I'm not going out in that <laughs> stuff. And that's also advisable to have maybe an alternate place for them to urinate, defecate, such as... Uh, we call them pee pads, but uh, mm-hmm. pads are uh, like that. And some dogs, uh, fortunately, can use a litter box as well. So uh, there's, there's alternatives to the dog getting out and getting soaked. Yeah, my, my brother has a number of dogs and uses the pads, and they, it seems when I go down and visit that that seems to be a successful thing. And that's something, I guess, once the dog gets used to it and knows he's allowed to do that, that that is a, a good solution when they can't get outside. Absolutely. Usually I suggest having it close to the door, maybe more than one, depending on how many dogs you have, too. But uh, once the, the puppies get through the idea of it's something they need to tear up and shred, uh, and they learn to use it. And that's, in most cases, they will. So as I mentioned, our guest today is Pierce Young. He's a private lands wildlife biologist with the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. First of all, Pierce, thanks for joining us on the show this morning. Tell us a little bit about what you do with MDWFP. Yeah, good to be here. Um, I'm in the private lands wildlife management program. So basically, we're a team of uh, wildlife management consultants, you know, for the state agency. You know, our agency uh, was tasked when it was created, you know, to, to manage the state's wildlife resources and um, over 80 to 90 percent of lands where wildlife are on private lands and so that's what we do we consult with landowners and help them uh, do habitat management and all kind of things of that nature 
So um, that's interesting. Then um, I, I I wasn't aware of that. But so uh, landowners here can use your expertise to help them manage what's on their land. Yeah, yeah. They it's a, it's a free service we provide. You know, through the state um, using you know licensed dollars, hunting licensed dollars, and if they just go to our website mdwfp.com slash private lands, there's a button they can click, fill out an application with their information. Of, of what they want to do on their uh, property and uh, contact them and, and help them any way we can. So um, as we mentioned in the open, it seems like white-tailed deer are pretty much everywhere in Mississippi. Uh, how prevalent are the deer here in our state? Yeah, so uh, around 2006, our population uh, previously peaked at 1.5 million deer and uh and then it went down for for a few years, and then um, our last estimates around 2021 were thinking they're they're back up. Uh, so they went down to about 1.4 million, and we think they're back up to 1.5 million deer. So really at or uh, above um, uh, record highs, you know, right now in the state. Now that's that's regional. We don't have county by county data. Like some other states, we don't have a, a tagging or reporting system for hunters uh, like most other states. So, so that's that's just a statewide estimate. So there's going to be some places that are much higher and some places much lower. But so, how do you go about trying to estimate something like deer when there's a, a, almost a million of them? Yeah, yeah. So we we do that through um, surveys of our hunters each year. Big survey uh, uh, company that we use. Um, and then we also use some data from our uh, DMAP program, which is our Deer Management Assistant Program. A lot of hunting clubs and, and landowners throughout the state uh, to to get age estimates, and we we kind of basically take the numbers and and backdate. You know how many deer were harvested. You know based on that. Yeah. So so a lot of uh, numbers crunching basically. Um, but but that's how we do it. We do have a call around the line, so we're off to Yazoo County. Bell has called in today. Good morning, Bell. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to make a, a comment. Um, I just wondered if uh, the deer expert uh, ever came across any studies done by an LSU professor, uh, Bob Noble, Dr. Robert E. Noble, from originally from Harrison down in Jefferson County. And uh, he did uh, studies on deer. Jefferson County, I think, always had a pretty high deer population. And uh, he, I just wanted to run that across you because he is a Mississippian and was, and he retired here. And uh, besides being an academic, uh, he was one of the most down-to-earth, neighborly people you'd ever meet in uh that's all I had to say. Thank all right. you. Thanks, Bell, for the call. Are you familiar with Dr. Noble? Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the name. You know, there's there's been a lot of good deer research uh, that has uh, come out of Mississippi, you know, from Mississippians and and even with the Mississippi State University Deer Lab. They're they're internationally renowned now um, with, with multiple platforms that they have. But, yes, know the name uh, for sure in some of his work. So it's obvious because we see deer all over that they're pretty much adaptable to different kind of uh, uh, settings, I guess you could say, rural, more urban areas. Uh, but what is it that they their favorite, their best habitat would be? 
Yeah, so ideally deer like to live where they both have uh, food and cover, and oftentimes that cover is also food. You know, for example, some of the the plants that they use um, for about half of their diet, which we call woody browse or shrubs, this can be things like blackberry, greenbrier, honeysuckle, dewberry, things of that nature. Um, And even during this time of year, late winter, that portion of their diet can be as high as 70, 80%. Uh, But of course, these are plants that uh, make thicket type habitats, and that's that's typically where they like to live. Um, And then most of the the rest of their diet is going to be things we call forbs, which are herbaceous plants like weeds or legumes, you know, flowering plants, things of that nature. You know, that's a higher uh, quality portion of their diet and then a small portion is going to be uh, uh, what we call mast or acorns berries persimmons things like that uh, and it's only a small percentage of their diet just because uh, it's not always available so they can't rely on that you know uh, but i guess when they see if they're in an urban area and they see someone's uh, garden that might be easy pickings <laughs> absolutely absolutely if if uh a lot of the plants, like I said, you know, what we call weeds are also flower flowering plants, and that's oftentimes what we plant in our in our bushes or in our uh, flower beds or gardens or or have you know some of our bushes they'll they'll eat too, absolutely. So I've been doing the show for a number of years, and a lot of times I think I know the answer to a question before I ask it, and I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Should we be feeding deer? Uh, it's, it's best not to. So, you know, we, we call it supplementally feeding. Um, there can be some benefits, uh, if done properly, you know, on a, on a large scale. Um, but typically, uh, any type of, of feeder is going to concentrate animals, you know, and that, uh, the biggest risk is, is disease risk, disease increases, um, if you have enough uh, area or land, you know, even the size of like a, a front or backyard and can do uh, a food plot, plant something that they like uh, to spread them out more, that's always better. Um, you're typically even going to see them more. They have to feed more in those types of situations than at a feeder. Um, you know, using a feeder, you know, if, if you're using a more expensive protein feed, you know, that's that's better for them, but it still doesn't. Uh, reduce that concentration, you know, because I mean they're 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 getting around a food source. They're eating uh, the the foods getting on the ground, and they're urinating and and defecating and and salivating. Really, you know, a lot of diseases like chronic wasting disease really passes through saliva, and since they don't uh, sweat, I mean, uh, a deer can uh, salivate, you know, multiple gallons of saliva a, a day. And so when when they're eating in these same areas where all these these fluids are being uh, you know put on the ground, it's very easy for them to to get some kind of disease. Uh, let's talk about uh, chronic wasting disease in just a minute. And and again, this might sound like a crazy question, but do we make them quote unquote soft if we give them food as opposed to them having to go out and try to find it on their own? Uh, could could in a way you know probably more so if you're if you're giving them a food they really like you know like uh, corn um, that's more like candy to them they they really like it they're going to eat a lot of it um, it'll kind of make them a little more lazy at that point uh, and they will eat uh, a lot less um, native food that's better for them out there so uh, in in a way yes yeah but doesn't it also 
habituate them a little bit more to humans to where they would be less afraid to come up to other humans in, in settings and that sort of thing? Especially in urban areas, yes. We, we see that all the time, you know, them getting used to that, that food source um, and, and coming, you know, more so into the urban areas for that. And, you know, for most of the year, uh, a lot of these deer, you know, may be fine, but it, you know, it, it can be a risk to humans as well, you know, when they get into the breeding season and the bucks, you know, they can flip a switch um, and get very aggressive and, and, and hurt people, you know, during during that time frame. Or even does when they have their fawns can get very aggressive. So ideally uh, not uh, best to, to habituate them in, in that type of way. You know, one of the things I think we say on the show a lot is if you encounter wildlife – enjoy it from a distance but sort of you keep your area and let them keep theirs that's right so uh, let's talk about chronic wasting disease remind us of what that is and and uh what the status of chronic wasting disease in mississippi is yeah so chronic wasting disease is a is a a very complex disease because it's not a bacteria or a virus it's actually a prion disease or a uh, a protein that gets misfolded, and when that um, misfolded protein gets in a system, it'll bump into normal prions and proteins and make them misfold. This happens over time uh, in in the body of the deer, um, and as those prions uh, bump into each other, they also um, clump or accumulate, uh, and they especially on the neurons in the in the brain. So the more they accumulate in the brain. Uh, and clump up on the ends of those neurons, it'll cause that neuron to die. And when that neuron dies, a hole forms in the brain. And over time, it's a that's why they call it chronic wasting disease. You know, it's a very slow disease in the body. Um, and after about 18 months of the deer looking perfectly fine, it'll just forget how to eat, you know, because it has all these holes in the brain. And, and that's when it, it really wastes away, you know, as the name uh, says, um, and if something else doesn't kill it first, you know, the disease is 100% fatal. Uh, it's a disease, you know, we see more positive cases in the state every year. We usually get about the same number of samples statewide every year, so that increase is due to the accumulation in the population this year. Uh, as of yesterday, we're at 93 positives for this season. Um, I don't know what that brings us to as as a total um but it, it's it's slowly increasing, you know, in these areas, and we don't we can't test every deer, you know. We only get uh, about seven thousand, eight thousand samples um, a year from hunters, uh, and that's out of you know two hundred and fifty thousand that are harvested out of the one, like we said one point five million deer that we have. Um, so there are a lot more deer out there that that have the disease, you know, in these certain areas where we've we've been able to get more samples um but definitely definitely something to be concerned with for the future of of our deer herd and we can get into that more uh if 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 you'd like so with it not being like a virus or a bacteria or anything is that sort of like a like diabetes in humans where it's just like a deficiency something messes up in the body uh it's it's more like um it's more like cancer. You know, if you don't treat cancer, it's just going to grow and get worse uh, until you die, you know. Um, Definitely something, uh, I mean, and you can, uh, you know, use that uh, same example as as in the population. Like, you know, um, 
we need to we need to check the deer to find it in order to to try to do something about it you know just like cancer Kevin Farrell here on Creature Comforts with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We have a guest in studio this morning. It is, he is, sorry, <laughs> Pierce Young, who is a private, life, a private lands wildlife biologist for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We've got a caller on the line. Rebecca has called in from Fulton this morning. Thanks for holding, Rebecca, but it's your turn now, so go ahead. Good morning. Morning. Um, yes, I was calling because uh, where I grew up, there was a huge persimmon tree, and it ca- uh, when it came, when the fall came, and the persimmons dropped on the ground, there were deer, you know, that came by every day, you know, to to eat. And I was, and you know, I th- I thought about wanting to plant a persimmon tree, so you know, where I live now, so so the deer could enjoy it. Yeah, uh, persimmon trees are great. Um, you know, the the natural variety, you know, the southern persimmon um, is great for wildlife. It takes uh, longer to grow than, say, like the big Asian persimmons that we often see at, like, you know, our supermarket or something like that. Deer like, you know, both varieties. Um, uh, those trees definitely need to be grafted, which means you need a male and female tree grafted together there's there's a lot of you know uh, tree nurseries in our state uh like mossy oak native nurseries is is one that comes to mind that um that has a lot of good varieties and can help you you know uh determine what you need as as far as that goes but yes deer love them uh, not just deer i mean all animals i mean raccoons uh even um even coyotes you know which you you don't think of uh you know coyotes eating Stuff like that, but that just shows that really every type of wildlife, you know, eats eats persimmons. All right, Rebecca, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with uh, Pierce Young, the private lands wildlife biologist at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, talking about deer. So, Pierce, we were talking about uh, chronic wasting disease. Should humans be concerned about the disease? Yeah, so the jury's kind of still out on that as far as the research goes. Um, there has been some research done uh, looking into that and has, at this point, uh, has not shown that it can be a pass to humans. Um, but but it's kind of convoluted and a little more complex, and there's some, some new information out there about the different uh, strains of CWD that are in the nation and stuff, um, and, and it kind of comes in comes into question you know um if that research is is still valid or needs to be redone so it's it's we always recommend with with any disease not to eat a deer that we know is diseased Uh, but unfortunately with cwd like we mentioned before you know it takes 18 months you know before that deer is going to look sick so um the only way you're going to know is by getting it tested we do have drop-off freezers uh, throughout the state. You can go to our website, mdwfp.com slash cwd. It'll show a map, addresses, GPS points, of, of and the names of all these different locations, like if it's at a volunteer fire department or one of our WMAs or something like that. And you can take the head of the deer, um, put it in a bag, drop it off. We have cards there for you to fill out to attach to the bag, and then we'll send those off to get get tested that helps us with surveillance but also you know just peace of mind you know for people too all right uh this is creature comforts on mpb think radio looks like we have a pet question on the line for dr major so let's uh, go and invite lola into the conversation good morning you're on the air with us so go ahead with your question 
Good morning. My four-year-old cat was taken in Tuesday for his yearly vaccination and checkup. He came home with his back left leg. It seemed to be paralyzed. That got better, but his little paw and toes are curled under, as I would say, in the fetal position. Um, I, I was taking him back to my vet and was told, give it two weeks when he was injected uh, for his checkup. They could have gotten a little bit too close to, I believe she said, sciatic nerve, and that may not be the correct nerve. You can correct me on that. Anyway, I, I'd like a second opinion here if I need to contact MSU or if this is a time problem, if I could be doing any kind of PT for him. He's not in pain, um, but I'm very concerned about this. Certainly, it's a great question, and I, I can see kind of what you're talking about. Is he is he better now than he was? He, his leg is better, but from his what I would call his knee down, um, he his paw curls under, and his his toes are not are yes. curled under. And when he walks, so, he drags that that uh, foot yes. backwards. And of course, it does sound like nerve damage uh, of some sort. Now, is this an inside cat? Pretty much. Yeah, totally inside. Okay. And I would kind of concur with what the, the vet said, uh, that, you know, probably there may have been some reaction along the side nerve. Um, time usually will uh, correct it, uh, certainly as far mm -hmm. as physical therapy. I think it would be wise if he's not painful for you to extend and flex that uh that leg and maybe massage even, you know, not real hard, but just mm -hmm. to kind of keep it uh, loose, if you will. And okay. uh, they said give it two weeks. I don't know how long uh, that's been, but certainly you could take uh, this cat in for a second opinion and see. Uh, I would go back to your regular vet again when the time is up and see if they notice improvement. And yes. ask them about possibly should you go to Mississippi State to that school, okay? But this physical therapy, I think that would be good, okay? Okay, I will do that. And thank you, Dr. Major. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and I sure hope for the best, okay? Thanks for your question. Thank Appreciate your call, Lola. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'll stay on the phone lines here. Off to Starkville we go. John has called in. Good morning, John. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And my question is, um, are there uh, better management practices that could be employed to reduce uh, CWD transmission um, in deer populations, perhaps restricting the sale of uh, feeder stations uh, because the feeder stations may be a transmission point of CWD or deer licks, um, salt licks being a transmission point for CWD. Uh, are we doing our best here, or are other states or regions or 
our federal lands uh, doing a better job of uh, stopping transmission by restriction of uh, these deer congregating points? Yeah, that's a good, very good question. Um, when we do find CWD in, uh, in a county, uh, we have a CWD management plan that sets up CWD management zones. And one of the first things, you know, in, in that for that zone uh, in the state for those counties or areas, sometimes it's not a whole county, um, is to restrict supplemental feeding. Uh, so no uh, supplemental feeding uh, for hunters um, in that county. So, so we are already doing that. Now, as far as compliance goes, who knows? It's, a, it's really, honestly, a, a very uh, contested subject. Uh, a lot of people like their feeders, apparently. Um, and, but it is probably the easiest uh, thing that, that people can do to, to slow this spread. Um, other things we're doing is, uh, or that hunters can do, you know, in these CWD management zones and that they are doing is, is just really um, – standard uh, deer management practices like keeping the the population down um you know at a a, a healthy level or 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 exceeding um that to to just keep uh less deer in an area so there's less contact less deer spreading out from an area things like that all right, uh, John, thanks for your call. And I think, uh, Pierce, you earlier had mentioned, uh, I think when we were talking about the persimmons, if if you are trying to maybe plant things, natural things that would attract the deer, make sure that you have a, a wide area so that it's more dispersed so that they aren't sort of maybe congregating together. Absolutely. You know, um, even even with like what they call a spin cast feeder that throws the feed out, you know, that that's still happening over time every day um, in a confined space where if you have a food plot, um even even a ten by ten you know food plot can produce way more food, more cost effectively. It's better for them anyway, and they're going to get spaced out and um, and not be able to to concentrate you know to a to an area to where they could get some type of disease. So Pierce, so before the show came out, I mentioned that I was uh, biking on the Natchez Trace a couple years ago, and this huge deer kind of jumped out right in front, and so. A little bit scary, of course, because when you see them up close, you realize these are very large animals. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, deers and cars uh, uh, don't mix well. So um, how prevalent of, of an issue, a problem is, you know, uh, deer, car accidents? And then maybe what are some things that drivers can keep in mind to try to avoid that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely an issue, and it's been going up. And in recent years, uh, I think State Farm comes out with a, um, a collision report every year. And it, and, uh, and ranks all the states. Uh, Mississippi uh, went up a couple couple notches. We're definitely in the top five. I mean, we uh, we've been in the top five for a long um, top ten for a long time. Um, but but going uh, definitely towards the top as far as more collisions every year. I mean, that just goes with matching up with uh, our estimates that the population's been increasing. You know. Um, so it, it's definitely definitely an issue. You know, some things that drivers want to do is if they're on a four-lane highway, um, you know, definitely stay to the inside towards the median, away from the edge. That's where deer typically are. Um, if a deer uh, does step in front of them, best thing to do is brake, not swerve. We don't, you know, the worst thing you can do is go into a ditch. It's oftentimes, it's better to hit the deer than, than to go crash into the woods and into a tree or something like that. 
Um, also honk your horn if they're in front of you, trying to get them out of the way. Uh, slow down if you do see some on the edge. Don't honk your horn, you know, unless they're in front of you because they may jump in front of you. So um, use high high beams when you can, uh, so you can see them a lot sooner. And that's, those are the best things you can do. But should people be wasting their? Well, I mean, I put it that way. That's my opinion on. But should people be wasting their money on like the little whistle things and things you can get on your car? Yeah. So there have been some reports out there that show that that uh, there's never been a report that shows that they work. But there really hadn't been anything that shows that they don't either. So. And um, am I right in remembering that it's sort of dusk and dawn that they're most active? Mm-hmm. Yep, dusk and dawn. They mo- mostly uh, bed up, sleep during the day, uh, feed at night, and and most of their movements from bedding to feeding is going to be dusk and dawn. Yes. All right. So let's talk about now. Um, if you see a deer in your yard or your neighborhood, um, what what would you advise folks to do in, in that situation? Yeah. So if if you're if it becomes a conflict um, between the deer and and the homeowner, you know, so that if they're eating your flowers and things like that, there are there are a lot of uh, flower varieties out there that you can plant that deer will not eat, uh, such as rosemary, marigolds, daffodils, lavender, begonias, uh, milkweeds, coneflowers, foxgloves, and many many more. Um, also, fencing. Uh, you know, if you want to just put up a privacy fence, you know, six foot. Uh, wooden privacy fences uh, they can typically easily jump like a four foot chain link fence uh, and they could jump a, a six foot privacy fence if they wanted to but they're typically not going to going to and so that that can be an easily deterrent to keep them out of your yard um, and things like that you know vegetable gardens you can put up you know temporary mesh fences uh, with t-posts and uh, pvc tubing um and, and things like that. We're, we're definitely seeing more of an urban problem in, in a lot of our cities or, or suburban areas as well. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's even uh, some areas where the laws make it kind of, um, you know, convoluted if, if you can, even like bow hunt in uh, city limits, even though you have a lot of wooded areas around you. And so that that's something we're we're definitely looking at as well. Um, so, again, I think this is I think I know the answer to this one. But if you see a deer in your yard, should you approach them or try to feed them? No, definitely stay away from them. Uh, don't approach them, especially this time of year um, during during the breeding season. Uh, especially the bucks can be be very aggressive. So are they social animals? If you're liable to see one in your yard, would it more be like a little family of them as opposed to maybe just one? Um, it depends on the time of year. Uh, the does um, during the, the late summer period, you know, around July, when they're about to have their fawns or having their fawns, typically separate um, and, and break away from each other. Uh, during that time as well, the bucks will typically be together in what we call bachelor groups. Um, and then as the, the season changes from summer into fall, the, the does will typically uh, group back up into um, more or less family groups. A lot of them are going to be related, aunts and, and sisters and, and stuff like that. And, and then at that time, the bucks that are grouped up will start to break away as their testosterone goes up with the changing of, of the season, you know, getting getting ready for uh, the breeding season, and and they'll typically uh, be on their own 
later in the season as well. So you mentioned that the, the over a million deer and that the, the, the population is increasing. So what are some methods that uh, MDWFP can use to help control deer population? Yeah, so um, the biggest thing right now we're doing is is a campaign for for hunters. Um, whenever we see big increases or, or decreases in the statewide population, it's it's definitely um, tied to to doe harvest or deer harvest in general, but especially doe harvest because that's what drives uh, the population. And what we saw around 2015 or 2016 is we we saw two years of drought. Um, and a really large uh, acre and crop. So a lot of hunters were not seeing a lot of deer in the, say, the 2016-2017 season. Um, there was a big outcry about, you know, not seeing a lot of deer. I mean, populations were were down compared to, to some of those earlier years around 2006. And um, and so so what happened was um, some some – uh, doe bag limits got changed. You know, it was even suspended on some public lands, and and that's why we we saw a big increase in in the number of of deer. Um, but where we're even though since 2020 we've been seeing a, a increase in the number of hunters, where we used to see 85 percent of our hunters harvested deer, now we see less than 60 percent. So we've kind of got a campaign out now with our media department for hunters uh to just shoot one more deer you know uh also focusing on trying to get people out um that have not hunted before you know there was a national survey years ago that showed that for every hunter there's about two or three people that they know that do not hunt but want to hunt um and so if if you're not a hunter and you're listening to this um, I encourage you to do so. Venison's great meat, especially with meat prices. You know, it's, it's very lean. Um, you know, a lot of people are going to that more locavore, uh, natural foods uh, now. Uh, definitely support that as well. And it doesn't get more natural than, uh, as far as meat goes, than venison from a deer. So, so that's interesting because you're right. So not only then is hunting something enjoyable for a lot of people, a lot of a challenge or whatever, but if if folks get out there and do that again, they're they're helping out by helping manage the, the deer population. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, is there anything that local or municipal officials can do if they're in their community that seems to be a problem with overgrown deer population? Oh, absolutely. And, and we wish, uh, you know, we would see more of that, you know, definitely look at your, your language, um, you know, in city limits, you know, to, to address, you know, what is a firearm, you know, what, uh, or a projectile that can be used. You know, if a lot of those, uh, even when you have a lot of wooded areas, uh, you can't bow hunt based on those, the way those laws are written. Um, for example, you know, Oxford did a, a great job. I think it was back in twenty. 10 they got with our department um and and worked with um worked with the city and the department to to basically create a urban hunting club uh bow hunting club um that has that has worked in cities all over the nation you know that uh, a lot of cities for decades have tried other non-lethal means you know contraceptives and trapping and relocation those have never worked um, and, but what has shown to work are these, these, um, uh, urban hunting, uh, 
allowances. Now, you know, there's a lot of safety precautions and things that go into that, you know, and, and who you get and all that, but uh, definitely something to consider. And that would be the MDWP could certainly provide the technical assistance for any cities that needed yes. to them. Yes. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can search for Creature Comforts on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. Our show is produced and engineered by Abram Nanny, and our call screener today was Jermaine Flood. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Pierce Young, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with Coach Charlie Melton. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.